Thank you for leading us in worship with those beautiful songs. I would encourage you to go back after the service and to read the lyrics of O Creatures of Our God and King. It's a not only is it a beautiful song, but it's pertinent to what we'll be reading today in First Peter. So we're in First Peter chapter one verses 3 to 5, and just to give you a recap, last week we talked about how Peter is writing to most likely his former congregants who have been scattered across Asia Minor. They, these were believers who were most likely members of the Jerusalem church, and if you look in Acts 8, you can see uh, because of great persecution that arose, believers began to scatter. And so Pastor Peter is writing to encourage, and the, the thesis verse of the book is chapter 8, verse 18, where he writes that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. And so I would say our, our, our key phrase for, for this book is that true faith stands firm in the grace of God. And last week we looked particularly at Peter's saluta- at his salutation, at his greeting, where recalling the grace of God, recalling the blessing of the believer's election, and that they are made sojourners on this earth because heaven has now been made their home, knowing that their salvation was a predetermined action in God, that it was made a reality through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit and that their salvation was so that we would no longer be slaves to sin but slaves to Christ and that we would be sprinkled by his blood fully, finally, and completely being declared righteous. Because of all that recollection, Peter said, he ended his greeting with, let grace and peace be multiplied to you believers. We turn now to verse 3. Where Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are being protected by the power of God through faith, for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. One thing that utterly amazes me is the lack of knowledge that mostly young people in our generation seem to demonstrate when asked with simple historical questions, which were, for me and really anyone above 30, questions which were common knowledge. Uh, You can go onto YouTube, and you can find people walking the streets asking about the War of Independence, asking about the Civil War, and many will will say that they don't know why the war was fought. And what's worse is some will even say they don't even know who won the war. And what's inexcusable is some people will say they don't even know who fought in the war of of those two wars. 
and sadly, I think partially because we're so surrounded and bombarded by technological innovations and the newest movies that we have to see and the latest TV shows that we have to watch, the many activities and objects of entertainment that are just thrown at us in the multitudes, we can find ourselves obsessed with the pleasure that we have in the moment, and at the same time, we often lose sight of our past and our glorious future. This is a daily reminder that the church must gird herself with the reality that she has been called out by a gracious God who through strength and power and grace and mercy has saved a people unto himself. And he has promised them, he has promised us heaven. This isn't what many churches will tell you. This is not what many preachers will say. They will say that Jesus died so that you can be happy. God made you his child so that through you he can change the world. He has saved you so that you can realize some grand destiny dream thingy or that you can find and achieve and realize some hidden purpose. This is a theology that doesn't revolve around God. It doesn't revolve around his scriptures. It revolves around man and it tickles the itching ear And it strokes the ego and fans the flame of pride because it's not God-centered. It's man-centered. And it teaches us that life is really all about you. And really what, what you and I need to be doing is we need to be maximizing our potential so that we can really reap the rewards and the benefits and the profits. I think the most famous proponent of this theology can be seen in a book that came out in 2004 called Your Best Life Now, Seven Steps to Living at Your Full Potential by Joel Osteen, pastor of Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas. Osteen began preaching his sermons in early 1999, right after his father passed away. His father, John Osteen, was a very charismatic prosperity preacher who had brought the church to an impressive 5,000 membership. But under Joel, the church would explode in numbers because his broadcasts would be exponentially more popular and more well-received than his fathers ever were. And his sermons, his, his teaching is comprised of homespun wisdom, sometimes with funny and cute anecdotes and exhortations of self empowerment and with his ministry making such an impact it really wasn't that it was just a matter of time until he penned a book and the book your best life now quickly climbed to the top of the new york times bestseller it only took three months and it would remain there for two years and it, within three months of it of its release it had sold five hundred thousand books and we were we were just I was just at the Shepherd's Conference and where there was a lot of good Christian books. And I heard that the average Christian piece of literature sells maybe, maybe a few thousand. To date, Your Best Life Now has sold over four million copies. And, and Osteen has relocated his church into the renovated Houston Rockets 
basketball stadium which seats a imp- very impressive 40,000. Now, I don't bring this up because I, because I enjoy bashing Osteen. I, I don't want that to be a soapbox. But when I, when I turn on the radio, when I go on the Internet, when I read and find out about what's going on in evangelicalism, I don't hear the gospel. I don't hear the, the biblical accusation that we are sinners, that we need forgiveness, or that we need a righteousness, an alien righteousness that is only acquired through faith. We are never told to anxiously await a Savior. We are never told to look, we are never encouraged to look anxiously to Christ, to eagerly await the redemption of sin and the curse. Why? Well, this theology plainly ignores sin and forgiveness, and it teaches men to find satisfaction in the here and the now. And really, all that needs to be done, all that you and I need to be about is just a little adjustment, a little perspective change, a little attitude change, a couple of your, you know, some of your bad habits need to be turned into good habits, and whammo blammo, your best life now. But the Bible is not really about you having your best life now. It's not about us finding happiness. It's not about us achieving a kind of life that would, be, that, make, that would make us sad to leave it when we enter heaven. The Bible is about God and his grace and how he kindly stooped down to pardon us, to give us mercy, to show his grace to sinners, to sinners who rebel against him the bible upon explaining who god is and who man is and why man needs to be saved and forgiven it urges men to repent and believe now peter knows the norm for the christian life includes hardship and pain and suffering and persecution and sacrifice and there is joy that we have and unimaginable blessing and grace and peace that is abundantly available to the believer. But Peter wants to remind us that it's not the end of the world when trouble knocks on the door and forces its way into our lives, which it often does. If you are a believer in Christ, as Colossians 3, 1-4 tells us, your life is not on this earth anymore because you've died to this world. Your life is hidden with heaven, with Christ And it is there that your soul longs for, alongside Abraham, alongside all the saints of the Old Testament who longed for Zion, the city of God that he has prepared for his people to dwell in true, lasting peace and joy. And if you're indeed a believer of Jesus Christ, then the good news is that you have obtained an inheritance in his name that is, it's simply too wonderful And it's too glorious to describe. And it's my prayer that we would anticipate with more eagerness that inheritance in light of today's text. So there are five considerations I want us to take concerning our blessed inheritance, which is not on the basis of your works. It's on the basis of your union to Jesus Christ. And that makes it not just a privilege, but it's it's your right as a child of God. 
five considerations to take so that you and I might grow in our understanding of what God has prepared for us so that we might more truthfully appreciate God and be more moved to worship and bless him. Which is why I loved that Daniel sung that song this morning. These aspects that we'll look at are the source, the motive, the appropriation, the nature, and the security of the Christian's blessed inheritance in Jesus Christ. The first one we look at is the source of the Christian's inheritance, and that's found in verse 3, where Peter begins, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The great application of today's text is that we might give praise and honor and glory to God the Father because as we shall see, he is the source of the Christian's glorious and gracious inheritance. We saw last week how it was, within his, it was with his divine foreknowledge that we found the basis for our election, which was the first step towards accomplishing our salvation. God had in his sovereign foreknowledge a predetermined intention how he would act towards us, what he would do for us. And it was he who had an abundance of great mercy, of a mercy so great from which he would make us born again, a supernatural act beyond our capacity, beyond our nature, beyond our means to make right our very wrong condition. He made us his friends those who were his enemies. He made us who were orphans. He made us his children. And because he made us his children, who does the credit go to that we have an inheritance? It was he who gave us the inheritance, and because of him, because of that grace, we will enjoy all the undeserved, gracious blessings of heaven and eternal life and perfect love. And though we can't fathom how glorious those promises are right now because the Bible says, do we see by sight or do we see by faith? Right now we see by faith, but one day our faith will become sight and we won't have to hope for a blessed future because, you know what, we're going to live in a, in a hopeful and a blessed present. Sadly, I think the problem is that we have a low value, we have a low impression of heaven, how the, how all the, just think about the glorious and the wonderful promises of heaven, a glorified body that will experience no pain, no weariness, your soul will no longer feel sorrow or guilt, you will have a life that knows no need, no lack, no worry. 1 Thessalonians 4, second half of the chapter, gives us the comforting word that you will be reunited with loved ones in the faith who proceeded into glory before you. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 John 3, 2, gives us the comforting word where we are told that all traces of our sin will be wiped away. Sin will no longer have power over us not in the sting of death, 
not in the allure of temptation, not in the weightiness of guilt and shame. Why? Because the Word of God tells us it will be fully eradicated from the nature of our bodies. And what's even greater, we will see the risen Christ who was slain for us that we might be forgiven. We will see the Lord face to face and we will see with great clarity the salvation that he wrought on our behalf. And we will understand truths about our redemption that he accomplished for us, truths that we can't understand now. Truths that Peter will say in verse 12 of this chapter that the angels have been, they've been looking at as if it's a mystery to them. If you guys, if anyone here has gone overseas or you go by like some ethnic restaurant and you see a dish and there's something that you don't even, you can't even pronounce what the, what the name of the food is. You have no idea what it's made from and you have no idea what it tastes. And you look at that and you wonder, what, what, what is that like? What is that like? That, that is what the angels feel when they look at the salvation that we have. They don't have a need of salvation. So they look at this plan of redemption planned in eternity past and accomplished through Jesus Christ. And they look at that and it's a mystery to them. It's a taste they've never had. That Christ who saved us is the cornerstone of our faith. The Old Testament leading the believer and the worshiper of God to him. The Old Testament illustrates that mankind has a need for a savior who will provide life through the forgiveness of sin. A redeemer who will make slaves of sin into slaves of righteousness and a king whose throne is built upon the foundation of truth, truth, justice, and righteousness. A man who can usher in peace like no king who has ever walked this celestial sphere. I look forward to that day. That is the Christ that is the Messiah that the Old Testament leads you to await. And it be, I mean, it, clearly, just to give you some clear references of how this promise of Christ is found in the Old Testament, Genesis 3.15, the son of a woman, the seed of a woman who is promised to conquer and to vanquish the serpent and his, and his plan to turn man against God. Genesis 12.3, a worldwide blessing is promised through the, through the family of Abraham. A, a blessing that would provide worldwide blessing, worldwide peace to all the families of the earth. A king of peace is promised in Genesis 49.10. A king who will crush Israel's enemies is promised in Numbers 24.17. A prophet, a unique prophet who speaks the very words of God, as it were, is promised in Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19. 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 16 tells us that a king would come from the line of David. And there are numerous messianic psalms and passages in the prophets that have such vivid pictures of Christ and what he would do to save his people, to cleanse them that he would rule his people with equity and fairness and justice and righteousness and peace. The Gospels in turn providing a narrative of Christ arriving on the scene and living obedient to the Father, living 100% righteous 
and just and good in everything that he did, every minute of every hour of every day of his life, so that when he offered himself up on the cross, laying down his life, his own life, a transaction could be made. Our sin, our guilt, our shame would be accredited to him, and his righteousness could then be accredited to us. In order for sinners to be pardoned before a holy God, a holy and sinless life would have to be provided. And that was Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And upon reflecting of these marvelous truths that, the, that God had been revealing to mankind, beginning in, with Genesis 3.15, and being revealed all the way to the Gospels, and then being explained in greater detail with, through the epistles, upon reflecting that God had ordained all these things he had ordained to send his son for you. God ordained to send his own precious son whom he had known perfectly and whom he had loved perfectly and with whom he had fellowship perfectly in eternity past. God sent him for you and for me. So blessed be that Peter exalts the name of God the Father and he invites us to do the same in verse 3. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us, let us indeed join together and in corporate fellowship and also in the privacy of our homes, wherever we may be, in a spirit of thankfulness let us increase in the honor and the praise that we give to God for giving us his precious, beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all the blessings that we receive in his name. Blessed be the God and Father who gave us Christ. That's the source of our inheritance. It was God who gave us Christ. Having considered the source of our inheritance, let's now look at the motive behind the Father's giving of the, inher of, of the Christian's inheritance through Christ. Verse 3, who, according to his great mercy, he has caused us. This is the motive of the Christian's inheritance. It's according to his great mercy. Here Peter is telling us what prompted God to send his son to save and redeem us. And to, and to give us the promise of heaven. It's not because God looked down at his creation and saw that it was broken and got angry because his, the, the, the work of his hands was blemished. It's not because God was obligated to save us. He didn't owe it to us. God wasn't under the gun to move a finger on our behalf. The compelling factor was that God is by his nature, he is a merciful God. Our God is a merciful God. I, I love this word mercy. It's, we talked about grace last week, and mercy is very similar to grace. The distinctive being that mercy is usually a response to a need. It is a compassionate concern. It is a kindness. It is a demonstration of pity 
to distress, to a need. Biblically, God's mercy is demonstrated when he looked down upon the sinner's pitiful condition. When he looks down upon man and he sees man's sinfulness. And remember, when God sees our sinfulness, he sees sinfulness for what it really is. That should humble us. Because not most of the time, we don't know where our sin is going to lead us. We don't, know what, we, we don't really see what sin does to us when we run with it. Sin is a cancerous condition that is it's deeply ingrained in our very being. It's, it's that inclination we have to exalt ourselves, to promote our own sense of authority, to, to, to promote our greatness. And in doing so, we rebel against God and reject his authority in greatness. That's what, that's what sin does. It tastes good on the lips, but it's, it's a wormwood to the soul. And given enough time and left unchecked, sin will dull the senses of your conscience and sin will take you to places that you never thought you would go. You will reach such depths of your own depravity that you will either give up in utter desperation and you will profess no hope of ever changing or you will embrace the pretense of willful ignorance and you will suppress the truth and embrace the lie that your sin is not that sinful. And you can see that illustrated in Romans 1. Either way, sin dominates. Sin enslaves. And had God done nothing, the whole world would walk this way. And you can see a picture of that in Genesis 6.5. It says that God, looking down on the earth, that he saw the wickedness of man and that it was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. Some of the time? Once in a while? No, continually. I think because we naturally want to avoid cold, hard truths, we immerse ourselves in entertainment or work, anything that will take our minds off the weightiness of our own guilt and shame for the sin that we have. But God, looking down on man, seeing the poor, miserable state that we were in and what sin does to him, seeing the desperateness that we had, even though we didn't acknowledge our need for a Savior, God sent one. God provided one. Why? Because he is merciful. He is moved to act with compassion because of his great mercy. And he does, our God doesn't have just a regular kind of mercy. If there were a whole bunch of mercies in the room, God's mercy is the one with the cape on it. God has a great mercy. And one thing I've heard, one criticism I've heard about God and, and his word is that the God of the Old Testament, he's just some bloodthirsty, angry ogre. He's a, he's a volatile being who, he's a capricious God who demands sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And how the God of the New Testament, he's just a soft, fluffy bunny. With, he's just full of love and tenderness and kindness. Well, I, I would remind those who think that way that Jesus had much to say about condemnation and the just wrath of God. Jesus talked a, a bit about hell. But particularly what I love, what I love 
in reading the Old Testament is I love the word chesed. It's the, it's the Hebrew word for mercy, and it is, it is, a, it is a rich word because if you, if you were to look up, uh, if you were to get a lexicon, a, a, a Hebrew dictionary, and you were to look up the word chesed, uh, that's chesed without the ch, you would, it, the entries would be long because this word is rich. It combines the idea of loving kind, of love and kindness and faithfulness and loyalty and, 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 and uh, integrity because the word talks about God's covenant love and covenant faithfulness. And I absolutely love when God shows his chesed to people when they don't deserve it. I love seeing it when God's mercy and his faithfulness fall on people who time and time again act in ways that would disqualify them from receiving favor. But God, because he is a merciful God and a faithful God, they continue to receive his chesed. God responded to Adam and Eve when they were told, in the day you eat of the fruit, you shall die. They eat of the fruit. And God clothed them to cover their shame. God responded to the patriarchs who many times acted like knuckleheads. He responded to them by reminding them of his promise to Abraham. God responded to the cries of the people in Egypt by sending Moses to retrieve them and to bring them out through great wonders. He responded to Israel in the wilderness by feeding them multiple times, by giving them water from a rock. Seven times in the book of Judges, God delivers, uh, upon hearing the cries of his people, he delivers them from their oppressors. And I, I, I think perhaps the clearest and greatest and most detailed, consistent display of God's covenant love and mercy to a man who, dis, who did not deserve it is David. The first... The first bit of his life, he, he's presented pretty positively, but y'all know David, the, in, the, the Bathsheba incident. If you look in chapter 12, I believe verses 6 to 8, you will see God say that the sword would never depart from his house and, because there would be consequences for what he did. And the rest of David's life, for the most part, is pretty dismal because time and time again, David is not walking well. He is continually making poor choices and relying in the flesh, but the only reason he didn't fall apart, the only reason the nation didn't fall apart is because God's faithfulness remained on him. God's mercy to David and to the people of Israel remained on them. And if it weren't for God, David would have fallen apart long ago. If it wasn't for God's mercy, the people of Israel would have fallen apart long ago. God is consistently shown to be a merciful and compassionate God, and he only rouses himself up against those who resist him and place confidence in their own self-righteousness. And you can see that when Jesus encounters the Pharisees in the Gospels. 
He regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar, Psalm 138.6. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor, Proverbs 3.34. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor, Proverbs 29.23. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted, Matthew 23.12. And in James, it'll be a while before Pastor Carl gets there, but James 5, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And when, it, when these verses talk about God being gracious to the humble, it's not just talking about lowly in spirit, but also those who are in pitiful conditions. That's what, that's what the word hum, uh, humility means. God is moved to respond with grace to those who are in distress, to those who are humbled. And to those who can only see God as a scornful, wrath-filled ogre, I would say to them, you only see him that way because you are too proud to admit that you need his mercy. God's mercy is so abundantly available if only we would believe that we need to receive it. It's my prayer that we would all take a spirit of humility and confess our great need for the great mercy of God Almighty. We've considered the source and the motive behind the Christian's inheritance, that it's given to us by God, and it's given to us by God because he is merciful. Let's look at the, let's look at the appropriation of the inheritance, the appropriation of the Christian's inheritance. It's still in verse 3. So how did we... How did we acquire this great inheritance? How did it come to be ours? Well, Peter tells us, according to God's great mercy, what? He caused us to be born again. He caused us to be begotten again. Now, see, you and I, we were all begotten at one time by our natural father and mother. But Christians through God's election of them, through God's predetermined favor towards them, according to his abundantly great mercy, God looked down on us, he saw our spiritual misery, and he granted a new nature through the gift of regeneration. Now, what did your parents give you? They gave you a body, which is good, but with that body came a nature that was correspondent to it. Ephesians 2 tells us that with this nature that came with your body, that you were dead in the trespasses of sin. That's not a very positive prognosis. Ephesians 2.3, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the nature, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath. Now, nature cannot please God because it is, in, it is incapable of belief. It is incapable of faith. It is incapable of the ability to repent of sin because it is bereft of life and it cannot do anything to rectify and alter its condition. See, when the law comes along, the law condemns because it tells us what God's moral and spiritual standards are. It does that through 
thou shalts and thou shalts nots. And God and, and man responds to the thou shalts with I, I can't, I can't do that. And our flesh responds to the thou shalt nots with I can't help but do that. We were utterly dead in our spiritual state, and in that state we rightly deserved God's righteous judgment and condemnation. And that is what you got from mom and pop. So everyone call up their parents and say, thank you for giving me this name. No, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. To those who remain in their sin and refuse to come to Christ and, and those who refuse to believe... Whatever pleasure this life gives you, whatever fleeting moments of comfort, whatever relative peace and ease you have, to those who remain outside of Christ, these fleeting moments are your best life now. To those who remain outside Christ, the next life is not a best life. But the Christian has been born again. He has been begotten a second time, this time by God. I'm sure mothers are appreciative they don't have to go through that process again. This time it is a supernatural act, and that's necessary because in order to receive an inheritance from God, one must become a child of God. An inheritance is something given to one's child. If you were first a child of wrath, in order to receive an inheritance from God, you must become his child. You must become begotten of God. And that's precisely what happens in regeneration. This is what happens when the Spirit grants you and me new life. And when, and, and, and when we are united spiritually to Jesus Christ. For that reason, what does Jesus say in John 15? And what's his prayer? What, what's, the, what's the theme of his prayer in the upper room? Is it's, it's the unity that we enjoy in him. Now, how does this happen? If you look ahead to verse 23 of 1 Peter 1, verse 23, Peter says that this being born again, it's not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. When a sinner hears the word of God, the word of the law that condemns, and the gospel which preaches Christ, the Spirit uses that as the catalyst to create a regenerate heart which replaces that cold, dead heart of stone that could not feel genuine sorrow, that could not produce genuine repentance from one's sin, and this new heart, this, with its accompanied new nature, is aligned with God because it's receptive to his word. And it hears the word, and it receives the word, and it bears the fruit of the Spirit through the work of the Spirit in obedience to Christ. And we looked at that last week a little bit. And this is because this new heart, being united to Christ... It's eagerly awaiting for his return. Because God raised Christ up from the dead, this new heart eagerly awaits the return of Christ. Because just as God raised up Christ from the dead, who else will, will benefit from that? 
us. Because God raised Christ up from the dead, we will be raised up as well. Look, look to 1 Corinthians 15. We have been given a new nature now, but one day we will have a remade body living on a remade earth. And, and Peter calls this hope, he says, he, he calls it a living hope. Because the object of our hope is himself living. Christ himself is the concrete, solid object of our hope. And it doesn't shift or change like the fanciful whims that, that we often hope for. You know, I hope it won't rain today, or I hope it will rain today. I hope traffic is light. I hope I win the lottery. I hope I win uh, I hope I lose 20 pounds. I hope I have children someday. I hope I have a great job. I hope I find the right one. I hope I have good health. So many of these things that we hope for, they're, they're so dependent on variables that are unseen and so utterly beyond our control that we really don't have any right to expect one outcome or the other. But Christ was raised from the dead just as he said he would be. And because his word proved true, proved true you and I can be confident that when Christ say, says that he will come back for us, he will. We can hope for with surety that our perishable bodies, perishable bodies will be replaced with imperishable bodies. And that this sin-cursed world even though to some degree it does reflect the glory of God, that's what, that's what the Psalms tell us, our sin-cursed world will be made to even more reflect the glory and the majesty of God. And that through new merit of your own, you and I were given this gift through the second birth from God the Father. That is how you acquired it. You were given it. You didn't purchase it. You didn't work your way to heaven. You didn't do the right kind of religious mumbo-jumbo to get the VIP backstage pass to heaven. You were given the inheritance of heaven as a gift through the miraculous, supernatural, and sovereign act of being made a child of God by God himself. We've looked at the source, the motive, and the appropriation of this great, blessed inheritance. Let's look at the nature of the inheritance. The nature of the inheritance. What what is it? What is it? What, what's it like? What's it made of? The inheritance that, and, and we're now we've successfully arrived at verse four. The inheritance that Peter introduces in verse four. This is the object which which dominates both verses. It's the chief result of God's benevolence towards Christians to which Peter is directing his audience. We were born again to a living hope in Christ to obtain this blessed inheritance. Now this word inheritance, it, it, this, is a, this is a word which speaks to a considerable portion of, of wealth or perhaps property or, or even uh, the, the big hand in a family business that would be passed down to one's heir. And I had, I had a, uh, what's that word, an epiphany. I had an epiphany this week because I found out that in the word inheritance, what, what, what's the second syllable? Heir. Inheritance. I was like, I read that. I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. It is. It is uh, the progression of wealth or property 
that would go from father to son. And it would be very, very unusual for the inheritance to go to anybody else but the firstborn son. The, the eligibility of the heir wasn't found in his ability. It wasn't found in his intellectual prowess. It wasn't found in, in his strengths. It wasn't found into who he knew or who he hung out with. The heir was made the heir because he was the son of the father. In the Old Testament, as the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they were repeatedly told by God that because they, had now, they were now his people, because he had made them his people, they were now given the promise of inheriting the land of Canaan. You can see that in Numbers 18 and Joshua 13, and really too many verses for me to list right now, but... When, when, you, when you read through the Old Testament and you read about the people taking possession of the land, that word for take possession is most of the time the verbal form of inheritance. So when we use this word to describe what Christians have to look forward to and, and what, what we wait for, what we hope in, the picture behind this word is that was that of God giving a spacious land which was already furnished with towns and houses and markets and walls and furniture to a fledgling slave nation coming out of Egypt. When you read Joshua, God told them that you would, that you would inhabit, you would take possession of a land, that you would take possession of fields you didn't sow or reap or, 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 or harvest. You would take possession of houses you did not build. And they were, a, they were a fledgling slave nation. They were not a trained army. Coming out of Egypt, coming out of the wilderness of Sinai. So when, when you see that picture of that, of that great blessing that there was no way they could, they could take possession of it by themselves, but that it was, they were taking possession of it as an inheritance as something that was given to them by another. That is a great picture, it, just to give you a sense of the, uh, of the scope, of the magnitude, of the greatness of the inheritance that you and I have waiting for us in heaven. Just as Israel was promised a land to inherit, which they did, Peter wants you to know that God has promised you an inheritance in heaven, which one day, by his grace, you will receive. Why? Because you earned it? Because you did the right religious thing? Because you, you, uh, you give in the offering every week? Because you were born into a Christian family? It's because God made you his child. Because God made you his child. And because he made you his child, it's your right to receive. It's your right to receive it. Because God has made him your father and you his son or daughter. Heaven, its riches, its majesty, its peace, its goodness has become your future dwelling place because you have been supernaturally placed into the family of God. And I, I, I look out and I know some of you have lost friends and family. And this should be particularly comforting to you knowing that you are surrounded by brothers and sisters who you will love and be loved by for the rest of eternity. And I, I, I hope that 
speaks to you. Peter wants you and I to long for heaven, to be drawn to it. And so now he takes a moment to describe this inheritance. What's it like? Well, he says it's imperishable, it's undefiled, and it's unfading. That first word, imperishable, this speaks to its incorruptibility. It's not subject to death or destruction. It can't be taken apart. It's undefiled. It's not stained. It's not polluted. It's not flawed. Unfading. Like a diamond, it does not lose its value or worth. It does not decay. Now think about these words because these words stand opposed to anything that you and I know and are familiar with, anything that we place comfort in, anything that we place security in, the things in this life that make us feel stable, all these things are subject to corruption, to destruction, pollution, being stained, being flawed, becoming flawed. They lose value. They lose worth. Everything. Do you have great health? It'll fade. Do you have wealth? It'll disappear. Great property and valuables can be subject to theft, disaster, ruin. Your insurance can run out or be denied. Friends can leave you. Friends can betray you. Great minds can deteriorate. Families can disown you. Businesses can fail. Governments can flop. Israel's inheritance itself, the land, was constantly under threat by her enemies. And it would eventually be conquered and and taken away from them by the Assyrians and the Babylonian empires. And even though the Jews were around in the land in the time of Christ, there is absolutely no sense in which they were still in possession of it. They had lost it. But the great difference is that your inheritance, our inheritance in Christ, is not subject to any of these natural phenomena. It can't be corrupted. It can't be destroyed. It will never be touched by decay or death. It never fades in its glory or greatness. It never loses its awesomeness. Why? Well, because it's inherently tied in its nature to the place where it was fashioned and where it's currently being kept for you. And this leads us directly into our last point, which is the security of the Christian's inheritance. The security of the Christian's inheritance. The security of your inheritance is so closely tied into its nature that it follows right after Peter's description of it. The reason why your glorious future as a son or as a daughter of Christ is so secure, the reason why it will never see corruption, why it will never be flawed, why it will never be decayed is because it is fashioned and it is being reserved in heaven. The object of the Christian's faith and hope has always been the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so naturally the security of the inheritance that we are promised through our position in God 
before God in Christ, it's tied to the fact that Christ himself abides in heaven. Colossians 3 says that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's seated in a position of power. He is seated in a position of favor. And with the Father on the throne and Christ sitting beside him, no one's going to sneak into heaven. No one can even touch what's yours. Jesus himself says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But what's he say? Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys nor thieves break in or steal. Your inheritance, what is yours through Christ, is fixed and unalterable as heaven itself. Now think about it. When was the last time someone shook heaven? When was the last time anyone scared the inhabitants of heaven? When was the last time that anyone did anything that made the angels, you know, call Brink or Allstate. Now here's some comforting words from Peter. And it's especially relevant as it relates to the purpose of Peter's letter. And remember, remember the thesis of the letter, 1 Peter 5.12. True faith stands firm in God's grace. You and I have the incredible, incredible privilege of calling heaven our home. And I, sadly, I, I don't think we appropriately. I know, I know our culture does not appropriately appreciate what heaven is. Heaven is, heaven is a laughing stock. Heaven is a joke. Heaven has been portrayed as a boring place where little wingling babies, baby angels, are playing the harps and chasing each other. On the clouds. I remember a movie from my youth, uh, Bill and Ted's something or other, and they go to heaven, and the Grim Reaper actually sneaks in and like and fools God, makes a complete mockery of the of, uh, of the God who sees and knows and who is sovereign. He is God. God is seen as an old tired man who's up there somewhere who's taking a snooze. He's a dumb and culpable God. Our world, does, our culture certainly does not appreciate the glory and the wonders of heaven and heaven's God. It is a pure place. It is a holy place. It is a good place where all good blessings come. We'll get to that in James all the governments of the nations may fail, which they will eventually, but we still have a home that is absolutely unshaken. So shouldn't we bless God? All the economies of the world may become worthless, but we have a home where every single need will be supplied from God's own storehouse. Shouldn't we bless God all the armies of man may fall, but the angels of our God and King stand ready for all eternity. Such, such security. Shouldn't we bless God? All flesh of man may fall to disease and disability and weakness and 
and tiredness and even decay and death, but in the life to come in heaven, you and I will no longer have perishable bodies, but glorified imperishable bodies. Shouldn't we bless our God for the goodness that we have waiting for us in heaven? I'll see my parents again in heaven. But even... Even, and I have many friends, some whom I've lost, and I'm sure there will be friends down the road who, who will pass away before me. But what's of an even greater comfort to me that I will see loved, lost loved ones again is the fact that I will see Christ himself, the one who loved me when I hated him, the one who died for me when I was his enemy, And the one who abides in me and so stands with me through everything I go through. I will see him face to face one day. And so will all of you. That is a wonderful word. At the return of him, at the return of Christ, Peter says, in the last time, that is when your inheritance will be revealed. Not a moment sooner. It will be revealed with power and glory, and that is our sure future. Shouldn't we bless our God for being so good to us? Our great God and Father, we thank you. We thank you for saving us, for making us your children. We thank you for giving us Christ which was costly to you. Your word says we were not saved by a common thing, by a common sacrifice, but by the precious, costly blood of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that all things are in your control and that though this world may fall apart, heaven is never shaken. And you've given us a home with you in eternity, Lord. As as we go out, Lead us, keep us, strengthen us, help us to see you more clearly in adversity and trial. Help us to stand firmly in your grace. Amen.